Okay, so we are turning to Hebrews chapter 12, this great chapter which starts with the focus on fixing our eyes on Jesus, and then continues with uh, from reading from verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or, go- or is godless like Esau, who, for a single meal, sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Happy Father's Day, everyone. That's a bit of a passage for Father's Day, isn't it? Many of us, as we think back to our childhood, or who are parents at the moment, know that a child who isn't given boundaries is a liability to themselves and everyone around them. Take crossing the road as an example. If we don't stop at the pavement and look right and left before we step out, will get hit by an e-scooter. My current favorite, can't hear them coming at all. A cycle, a pedestrian, or a car. We have to learn those boundaries, and parents have to train their children to ensure those boundaries are there. Verse nine of our passage made me smile. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Really? I seem to remember how I reacted to my dad. It was a bit like, oh, dad, mutter, 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 you know. Do I really have to do it that way? And I was chatting to a dad in our church this week, asking, what's your method of bringing discipline to your child? And he replied, well, it's the naughty step. Uh, Though I understand that's now been rebranded the thinking step. I'll catch up at some point, but there we go. 
But even that didn't work out the other day. Uh, his child was put on the naughty step. And then, whilst there, the child proceeded to switch off all of the central heating controls, which were handily placed near that naughty step. So the mischievousness just kind of carried on. Uh, did the child respect the discipline of the household in that moment? Uh, no. So this passage has so much to say, and I'm simply going to take three angles on it, uh, come at it from three different angles, so that we can learn from what it is that God's saying to us through this passage. So the first angle is what is good about God's discipline? The next angle is how do we view hardship? And the third angle is sin has huge consequences. So firstly, what is good about God's discipline? Here the writer uses the same analogy that Jesus himself does. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11. Jesus draws that analogy. Human fatherhood isn't at all perfect, and it comes from different motivations. Whereas the reality of God as father is that God is working for our good. That's the same point that the writer to the Hebrews makes. We are part of God's family. Therefore, we can expect God to treat us as a wise parent does, bringing us up with appropriate discipline. I would like to say that more than that, we can entirely trust God to be working for our good and from a place, from a motivation of unconditional love. That is God's view of us. That is his attitude towards us. So with that in mind, discipline is good. Maybe that's not the trendiest thing to say, but there's truth in it from that analogy that I've just described and the reality that God brings unconditional love. So the second part, how do we view hardship? And I think the beginning of verse seven is an incredibly helpful lens through which we can view hardship. Endure hardship as a discipline. Hardship is part of God's way of growing us and training us and bringing discipline into our lives. Now, there's often an aspect for me with hardship where I ask, why is this happening? And that often leads into, why does God allow suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? And all those questions that come with that. And the reality is that Christians are not exempt from the tough things of life. These early Christians that are being written to here were facing persecution. We know we have different difficulties in our lives, different troubles. And Jesus was very straightforward about this. He said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. So we're not exempt from that. In this world you will have trouble. 
And then he went on to say, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So with hardship, I prefer the question, what over why? So what do I mean by that? Well, I think the question, why is this happening to me, is a question that I want to take to heaven with me. It's not one that I want to overthink now. It's not that the why question is wrong. In fact, it's really important to grapple with those questions. But practically, and how I then go on living my life, I would prefer to ask the question around hardship, what? And ask that question, what, over the why question. What am I learning through this? What is it, God, that you're doing in these circumstances? What can I learn about you? What can I learn about myself? What can I learn about the community that I'm part of? And I want to ask the question, what? Because we know that in all things, God works for good. The stuff that's thrown at us is as a result of the fall. We know that beyond that, God is good and he uses every circumstance for our good. So honestly, when do I learn most about God? It's when I'm going through a tough time. Anyone else recognize that? When I'm calling out to God and asking him to give me whatever is required in that moment, those are huge growth points for me. And my dad died back in 2006. It was a time of grieving, and it was a time of calling out to God to meet me in the grief. And it was during that time that I began to come to know God as Father in a deeper and richer way that went way beyond anything my earthly father could ever give. The verses that lead up to that uh, command, endure hardship as a discipline, verses five and six, describe two reactions that people can have to discipline. And these reactions, uh, this, uh, the writer is quoting from the book of Proverbs in verses five and six. And as I describe these two reactions, I'd like you to reflect, do either of these reactions ring true for you today? The first reaction is, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. So there's that aspect of not engaging with it, dismissing it, brushing it off, and getting distracted with entertainment or something else to choose to ignore God's discipline. So it's a dismissive attitude of God's discipline. The other is, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So do you instead become dismayed, lose heart, become downhearted about what's going on? Why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong? What are you doing to me, God? However, the reasons not to dismiss discipline or to become dismayed is given in verse six, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. The discipline that God gives is a sign that you're part of God's family, that you're part of the covenant love of God. 
that you're counted as sons and daughters of the living God and to share in his holiness. Discipline from God is a good sign. It's showing that you're counted as part of God's family and that is really good news. So I think that's a healthy way of looking at hardship. So when we're going through it, as it says in verse 11, it doesn't seem pleasant at the time. In fact, it's painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. An ongoing training as we go through the marathon, the endurance race that is our life here on earth. So, so far we've looked at what's good about God's discipline. We're counted as part of the family, and that's really good news. And then how do we view hardship? And I've suggested that I prefer to ask, what are you learning over why is this happening? The final part. Sin has huge consequences. And my little subtitle to this is, Sin trips you up, grace picks you up. Sin trips you up, grace picks you up. And the example here to us in this passage is verse 16, is Esau. He was the elder son. He had the birthright to take on the inheritance and to fulfill God's plans for his people. But the training he'd had from his earthly dad and mum and the competition he'd had with his brother meant that his character didn't stand up. He gave an undisciplined response in the moment. And what was that moment? Well, that's recorded in Genesis 25. Esau came back from a hunting trip. He was absolutely famished, and he discovered his brother cooking. The smells of delicious food were too much for Esau. He said, give me something to eat. And Jacob, his opportunistic, scheming brother, says to him, Esau, I'll give you this food, I'll give you this plate of food, but first of all, sell me your birthright. Hmm. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? A plate of food for a birthright, an inheritance. We can see that, can't we? But in the moment, Esau's training did not stand up. He didn't see it. He took the meal for an exchange for his birthright. Esau's appetites for food and sex ruled over his life. All of us have besetting sins and failings that have the potential to lead us to make wrong, even disastrous choices. We see that in the news. We see that in our own lives. So that poses a question for us this morning, for all of us. Does your training stand up to the test? Does your training stand up to the test? How's it going with those spiritual disciplines of prayer, reading God's word, fasting, which is one of the best ways to counteract appetite? How's it going with generosity, purity, being accountable to another person, submitting to God's authority in your life? Does your training stand up to the test?
the way the story plays out for Esau in Genesis 27, when Isaac comes to bless his sons, there's a deceitful swap. Jacob doesn't come out of the story well. Read back in the passages to see that and the interaction as well with his mum. But the focus here is about Esau. Esau goes back to his dad and tries to persuade him. But dad's already given the blessing to the other son. It's too late. Isaac can't change it. Esau has lost it. He's lost what it was he was put on earth for because he's fallen to sin. He's fallen to that temptation. What could have happened differently in Esau's life? Well, along with the practice of spiritual disciplines, there's a strong community aspect to the statements that we read in verses 14 to 16. There are specific instructions to people in the church, make every effort, see to it, and the see to it is in the plural. Look out for each other, watch each other, work with each other. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Do we really understand what God has done for us in Jesus? That the grace of God means that we can come and be forgiven for our sins and to be counted as holy before God. See to it that no bitter root grows up and that is about unbelief. And the thought and the question I have for, this, this, for us this morning is, if you're handing on your legacy to the next generation and you see them about to make a mess of it or they're in danger of losing their faith, do you hold back and say nothing? Of course not. We need to be people who are willing to call it out of each other. If we see that somebody is making a catastrophic mistake or making a choice that is against what God has for them. When hardship comes, do we dismiss it or lose heart? Or do we submit to the discipline of God, allowing ourselves to be trained by tough times so that when temptation comes, we can stand firm to be the person God has created us to be, to live the life God has planned for us with fruits of righteousness and peace. This chapter starts with the image of running the race. It's a fantastic image, and that running the race includes the active choice to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Sometimes, when hardship comes, when discipline comes, it's because we've sinned. We're not alone in this. Sin is a reality, it's a struggle that everyone has. It's so important that we look out for each other. As verses 12 and 13 say, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, strengthen each other and flatten out things that could cause people to trip up, get the stones out the way. The strong teaming up with the weak. And it's not that one group of people are strong and the others are weak, not at all. We go through ups and downs and we help each other out with that. Earlier this week, I was talking with somebody who was saying how downhearted they were about a situation, and I gave them a, a gentle but firm challenge about an action that they needed to take. The next day, I was talking with somebody, and I was saying I was a bit downhearted about something, and they challenged me about an action that I needed to take. That's, that's life in community, isn't it? That's life together as we work out, we go forward. 
We look out for each other and help each other. And Hebrews is full of this idea, spurring each other on to love and good deeds. A friend of mine recently has broken her finger. I'm not saying that was a sinful action. I'm just going to draw an analogy. In breaking her finger, she's discovered that she has to get lots of people to help her, people to drive her, people to pick up luggage to take her on holiday, friends cooking her meals, asking her sister around to wash her hair. We need to get over the fact that we're not perfect. We all need help, we need assistance, and that's with sin in our life as well as in other aspects. I've pulled a ligament in my toe, and the piece of Steri-Strip that I've been given to help with it is called MeFix. And I thought, oh, it's not an individual MeFix, is it, that we're called to as Christians. We're here as community, we're here together, We're here to help each other out. And where do we fix our eyes? Again, it's not me fix. It's very easy for me to get in on myself and get downhearted and think, oh, this is what's going on. No, we're called at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 12, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And the reason we're called to do that is so clear in verse three. The writer to Hebrews is saying, we're doing that, do that, fix your eyes on Jesus so we don't grow weary or lose heart. Any of us in that state of feeling weary and downhearted after the trauma of the last two or three years? Yeah. Huh. What do we do? Well, don't focus on ourselves, the me fix, or try and fix it ourselves. No, we fix our eyes on Jesus and what he has done on the cross for the joy set before him. And that joy was bringing us into relationship with God so that the troubles of this life aren't the deciding, determining factor on our life. The the, the deciding and determining factor on our life is what Jesus has done on the cross. And this is where grace comes in. Sin trips us up, grace picks us up. Jesus wanting to restore that relationship between us and God. To reach that goal, he endured the cross, that physical suffering, pain, and hardship. And he suffered opposition from people. He endured the cross, and he endured opposition from people. And he reached his goal. He conquered sin, death, Satan, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So the grace of God Jesus at work in our lives and this is where I'm ending this morning is that we bring our sins our failings to Jesus not trying to fix them ourselves because that is futile or to hide them that's impossible but to confess them and to receive the unmerited extravagant exchange of grace As the hymn says, we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. That is the grace of God at work in our lives. I'm going to give a moment of quiet now for you to consider what God might be saying to you out of this passage this morning. So come, Holy Spirit, come and speak 
to us. Strengthen us in the knowledge of the grace of God at work in our lives. Come to each one of us now.